0: This is Herb Mentor Radio. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Dina Falcone. Dina is author of Foraging and Feasting, a field guide and wild food cookbook with illustrations by Wendy Hollander, as well as Earthly Bodies and Heavenly Hair, Natural and Healthy Personal Care for everybody. Dina produces falcon formulations, a line of herbal skin and hair care products, and earthly extracts medicinal tinctures. Dina is also a practicing clinical herbalist and has been very active in herbal education. And you can visit Dina today at BotanicalArtsPress.com. Dina Falcone, welcome back to Herb Mentor Radio.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me back.
0: It's awesome to have you back. And so you've been busy. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have this new book, Foraging and Feasting, a Field Guide to and Wild Food Cookbook, and I'm just blown away. It's so beautiful. It came in the mail, and I was like, I've got to have Dina back. This is so amazing.
1: Thank you. Thanks for your support. It's awesome.
0: Thank you. You're welcome. And so I wanted to reach out and um, have a little uh, herbal wisdom uh, sharing session here for our listeners. As anyone who has made such an incredible book like this has surely learned a thing or two about wild foods cooking. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what I thought was really cool is that when I first heard about this book, um, I saw like that I saw it on Kickstarter. Like you started a Kickstarter campaign. Can you share that experience? Like what it was like to put a book together and yeah, involve a community and, and all that? Because it's a very different sure. way of going about it.
1: Definitely. Well. Um, I had decided to self publish. The um, illustrator, Wendy Hollander, and I have founded this publishing company to produce the book. And um, we needed to get some big funds together. So we wanted to, I, w- I really wanted to do the Kickstarter. Wendy was a little bit hesitant, and then she just jumped right on board. Hmm. And we had worked pretty concretely and steadily on the book for three years before we launched the Kickstarter. So we were very close having finished the project. And it was a very scary moment to launch the Kickstarter because I had been privately working on this project and then the world was about to see it and they could reject it, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a vulnerable moment. As much as I feel and felt that it was a very worthy project that had strength and and that would be loved and so useful, um, I still had, you know, that moment where you're revealing something that's so close to your heart that you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's always that fear. So the Kickstarter moment was that the public, it was going to go out into cyber reality. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, you hit the launch button. It's a launch button you hit when you, when you begin your Kickstarter campaign. And there was a lot of heart, you know, pounding. Um, but it, it, so Wendy and I, um, you know, the first thousand dollars rolled in so fast that it was a little bit shocking. And then the support for this project um, was, was so wonderful and kind of mind-blowing. Kinda, you know, it was, you know, you, you, you can't believe that people are appreciating something that is so close to, to your heart, you know, something that I've worked so hard that I have felt so deeply connected to. And then the response is people are loving it through their words, but also through financial support. You know, they were willing to invest in the book. They were willing to buy the book. It was basically a pre sell, Just to be clear, mm-hmm. we weren't asking for um, uh, a fu- uh, a fund to be created to support our publishing company. We were asking for people to pre-buy our book, mm-hmm. and then we would have the funds to make the you know to print the the run, to create the the book, um, not to create the content, but actually to do the printing of it and to finalize all of the production components. So. Uh, that's how it, you know. That's how the, the um, beginnings of the Kickstarter. You know, it felt a little bit. It was a dream. It felt like a kind of a crazy, you know, wonderful, you know, dream of, of just the response and, and the revenue flow. You know, that allowed us to produce a book, which is now I, I think of as an incre- It's a very um, sturdy, long lasting, uh, highly designed book. That was, and we were allowed to produce such a beautiful product because we had the pre-sales from the support of the people.
0: And you know? had control because you're a publishing company, so you had control about exactly how you wanted it to look, what materials you wanted to use, where you wanted to get it done. And um, got it. And that. And you That's own. Exactly the, And right. you own the rights. You know, nobody can take this away from you.
1: That's right. And in order to produce a book like Forging and Feasting. The person, um, myself being the, quote, expert, needed to be there to design every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I could hand over to a production team. Forget about a publishing company. I was sitting next to everybody who was doing all the different parts that I didn't actually do, the graphic design. I mean, and the illustrator, who is an amazingly talented illustrator, was willing to work with me in that very... Um, slow-paced, detailed way over the course of three years to produce visual pages that speak, you know, to telling the plant stories as I see them, as I, as I see them in terms of being educationally effective. You know, people, I teach this subject, and so I, I, know, I know the content and how it needs to read. And so I was, you know, so grateful to have an illustrator who would work with me in that very tight way to, to, to direct the art. Mm -hmm. So it would speak right. And then also to work with laying the pages out with graphic designers that I was always telling the story, you know. And how could a publishing company do that? They wouldn't have the skills. They wouldn't know, you know, what to do. Yeah. (laughs) So it required that, that kind of intimacy that my being the publishing company allowed for and needed So in that way, it kind of had to be that, or you know, if we were to have been hired to do this through a publishing company, they would have had to pay us a couple of million dollars. (laughs) Right,
0: (laughs) absolutely, and you're right. And what's really amazed me, as you had mentioned to me earlier, that um, you started without a, a a list or a community online, that this has brought you out online. And so what I'm getting from this is that people who have a vision and a great idea can make something happen. But the but but the secret sauce here, as I'm seeing through you, is you had a few years of like work into it. So when you brought the vision forth to people, you because I remember going on that page and seeing like the beautiful illustrations and the layout, and I was like, I'm going to support this. This is going to happen because they've been putting a lot of work into this. So I think that's the secret right there.
1: You got it. I mean, I think you know the book itself reflects. 20-plus years of my focus as Absolutely. an herbalist, forager, you know, cook, and and that kind of thing. But the actual working of the, on the project had already, you know, th- the third year had begun, and I was holding back until we had a pretty finished product to offer, mm-hmm. um, partly because I was a little bit protective, too. It was like my baby, and I didn't want it mm-hmm. to just go out into the world yet. I, I had the vision, I knew what it was going to be, so I wanted to get much closer before offering it to the public. And then you're right, the people responded to the strength of the work that had already happened. So once the Kickstarter launched, I mean, we were already in the last stages of the book. You know, the book came out, uh, we sent it to be printed in May, so Kickstarter ended in March, so we just had two, two to three months of pr- you know, production to complete. And then it was at the printer, and then it was shipped to us. And, you know, so then people got their books in mid-July. Hopefully most of them did. Um, mm-hmm. But so, yeah, you're right. The idea is you do your, you know, you, I think that the recipe is that you're very passionate about something mm-hmm. and that you're committed to it and that you put in the good hard work. And also, you know, that the vision makes sense. Like for me, I, I could see that the niche of this book hadn't been filled yet. In, in the world of herb books and cookbooks, so, you know, which is where I live. I mean, I, I collect cookbooks, I collect herb books, and I could see that what I was accomplishing here in this text hadn't been done yet. So I felt confident around that, too. So I had done my homework for many, you know, a couple of decades, and then putting it to work and then creating this product getting the right team together having wendy to work with me to make it so gorgeous and beautiful and it just like it took off you know it was like a rocket you know
0: (laughs) Mm. yes yes, a lot of parallels here with us and herb fairy is three years of work before anyone even knew about it (laughs) exactly my wife's books you got it you know
1: (laughs) The, the thing about this cyber community which i should just give you a little background was that i had rarely used the internet so I was a resistor, you know, I had not, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I was trying to delay a lot of that or just had not set up my life with email and, and cyber stuff. But, Good for uh, you. When I, knew, <laughs> <laughs> when I knew that we were launching this Kickstarter and I realized that we needed to send it out, yeah. that part of it was that we needed to have um, a recipient for, you know, the Kickstarter and it was going to be online I went through my Gmail, and I looked for contacts so that I was doing homework again and looking for those. I went backwards through time, and so I picked up a couple of, you know, maybe a year or so, and I, I would say that I wasn't active in it, but I was able to gather up that information, the contact information, and along with Wendy's list, it, it was somewhat robust. You know, even though I wasn't active, I, I did my homework, and probably that's how maybe I even sent you one because maybe you had mm-hmm. communicated with me mm-hmm. at some point. Well, we had thought, our, oh, so we've had...
0: interviewed and we have another exactly.
1: Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, John, uh, he would will <laughs> like this book," you know. And it was kind of like <laughs> working backwards, even though I, I don't, I didn't use, I didn't use the internet as a form of business or for communication very much. The Kickstarter changed that. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> you saw the power of crowdsourcing, as they call it. Yeah, I
1: mean, we had access you know, to millions of people through the internet. And the book sold all over the world. And we pre-sold, once the entire pre-selling happened, it was over 3,000 copies.
2: Hmm.
1: It was crazy. And it wasn't to people we knew. Mm -hmm. It was maybe 15% were people we knew in our community. And then the other 85% were maybe connected to those people, but we had no idea. And books were sent to Israel, they were sent to Asia, wow. a lot to Australasia, to New Zealand, um, and a lot to Europe, and it, you know, it was just really moving, it was like, wow, and the internet and Kickstarter, the support that Kickstarter gave our project, not because we knew Kickstarter or anyone in there, but because they loved it, made that, made that possible as well, you know, Fantastic. they took the project and made it their, their project of the day and the project we love, and you know, it was like, whoa. <laughs> so Excellent. We thank
0: Kickstarter. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think uh, why, the reason why I kind of went, wanted to go in depth into that is because, Dina, you know, like I know there's a lot of our listeners out there who have a great idea or herbalists who, you know, have, there, there's a book or a site or a product that they want to get out there and to know that there's ways of doing it is inspiring. So your story is inspiring. You know, so I wanted to Absolutely. share that, yeah. And um, and as a person who's really into supporting independent, you know, projects and authors, like and, and making raising awareness, it was right up my alley. So, <laughs> right on. Uh, so let's talk about wild foods, and um, which is what the book's about. And so, let's, what I thought I'd do today is is kind of if we can create like a little mini wild foods primer of, of sorts, because I know on enter and a lot of people listening that. Um, that there's interest in wild foods uh, and wanting to use them, but for a lot of people, uh, even the step of going from, you know, buying some dandelion roots and roasting them and, and make to make a dandelion root coffee um, drink, uh, compared to going out into th- local park or somewhere and, and picking some dandelions and chopping them and roasting them and making the same coffee, is um, is is something that. That uh, that that is a hard thing, you know, it's to it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's break through that wall. I'm sure anyone listening who who at least in their adult life got into use, using herbs um, knows that there was that moment, that definitive moment that you never forget that I, I went. You go and harvest your first, um, you know, your first flowers or roots or leaves and, and to turn transform that into, you know, a, a medicine or a great meal. Um, so what I like about your book is it's a mentor to bring people through that process. So what is needed to break people through that wall, um, of learning to use wild foods?
1: So, um, you know, having taught the subject of forging for many, many years, it's the best thing to do is to be an observer of nature. So, when I lead plant walks, before you know what the name is and before you're hung up on whether it's food and how you can prepare it, you're really focusing on the plants as organisms, just as individual beings out there in the world. So you become a plant detective. You become Hmm. somebody who's curious and observant of the plant world and not as obsessed initially with IDing, uh, labeling, so that you may not even know what you're looking at and certainly you're not eating it yet. So you're a curious observer of the plant kingdom, and you come into close contact. You may choose to touch. Most of the plants are safe to touch. You don't eat yet. You could certainly smell. Um, And so the idea is to get your senses open and awake to the plant kingdom so you begin to differentiate the greenery out there. Because what's scary is us as a culture, we've been disconnected from all the plants, and we don't know what the heck we're looking at. Could it kill us? Is always the fear. Is it, you know, really dangerous? So, the idea is to settle in a, an approach. It, you know, it's a new territory. It's a new language, and you need to develop the skills to learn how to read it again. You know, so you're understanding how plants are um, created in terms of anatomical structure, mm-hmm. which is exactly why we have the plant laid out as uh, a uh, book laid out in the way that it is. So you really brought into these plant maps and you're brought into the world of the plant. And so to break the ice with somebody, you know, who's, quote, a virginal forager, they're afraid, they don't want to go out, there's no pressure around it. It's really a practice, and I suggest it as a daily practice, that you go out into your backyard or your meadow or your park, and you begin to differentiate the greenery and look and see. The book is meant to guide you, you know, through that process so you can go out with the book and reference and match the keys, match the identification features. Like is this, you know, if you were describing a person, does she have curly hair, is it red, you know, her eye color, it's the same thing with a plant. You're looking for those physical characteristics. So those are um, foraging, uh, what would you say, the key to foraging is proper identification Mm -hmm. and knowing how to use the plant um, and what part you would use at what time. And so it's, it's a, it's something that needs, it's very easy to do, but you just need patience and everybody's very impatient, (laughs) you know, want it right away. And I do the same thing. Like here where I live, um, we're lucky to have some, you know, land and things just arrive and I don't know who they are and I'll spend that whole season tracking that plant to meet it. So I'm like, Hmm, I don't know you. What do you you know? What are you going to do? And I watch for months, maybe a year, maybe two years to see the development of the plant. I know this plant then. You
0: see what I'm saying? Exactly. So and, and, and it's so yeah. not about like learning or well, maybe every plant in your area, but it's like trying to find a few, getting to know a few like plants, or like how, how, what's the, you know, is it best to go out the plant ID book and try to identify everything you can, or is it like just like focus on a couple, or what's... You know?
1: Well, I always say at least, well, for herb class students here, you know, one of the homework assignments is to always be observing something you don't know. Mm-hmm. So you're always tracking at least one plant that you're unfamiliar with, and you're checking in with it regularly, so you see what ends up happening to it, and then usually once you've followed it for a while, you can key it out, and you begin to know Actually, you can you know you know its species, you know its genus, and then you can start to cross reference it and learn how it's used mm-hmm. the, the The part of the you know the beauty of the gift of this book is that I've compiled those years of information so somebody can cheat and come into forging and feasting the book and get in there and be there and we've tracked the plants for you for three years. You can see the life cycle, um, but you still need to go out there in nature to confirm it, you know? So, But the book is trying in two dimensions to do what I'm describing to you now in real life. and um, It's, but it's, another it's thing, like a
0: Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, kick you, a kick's... kick you into
1: gear, get you moving. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's this, and so I think there's fear around the unknown, mm-hmm. and, and it's appropriate. And I think if we can be p- peaceful and patient with the unknown, it starts to reveal itself, and this is the plant kingdom in our culture because we've disconnected from it, and it's an unknown. And we're warned all the time since we're little that we could kill ourselves by eating the wrong thing. In most cases, nothing will—you know—the the, the plants are not too toxic. A handful, yes. Most not mushrooms is of concern, but a lot of the plant kingdom, you know, there are a, a percentage of them that are dangerous, and so therefore, you never eat anything you know, that you haven't properly ID'd and know that it's inedible. But in general, it's not that dangerous out there with plants. Right. You know, as much as there is that little bit, and so therefore I'm still very strict with my students. They cannot just go out and eat anything. You know, they need to know. But it's so beautiful to just encourage people to go out into the plant kingdom and become more fluent. You know, it's becoming fluent again in a language that we used to know, and, and then it all starts to come together. Once you, stay, you make the commitment to learn the language, you know, it becomes much easier. I can actually key a plant out because I know it looks like another species of its genus. And I'm like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I get it. I can pretty much figure it out. Um, so somebody will get that fluency as well with just time spent, you know, in the language of plants.
0: You know, Um, we got this. uh, Erica uh, posted on our in the herb mentor forum that. So here's here's somebody, and I'll just paraphrase what you say, and just to save a little time. But she lives in the Badlands of Eastern Montana. And she doesn't, hasn't found a good resource for a local field guide. And she also is unable to find someone to go on a weed walk with. Like, she doesn't have a problem with dandelion and currants and some basic ones, but she feels, mm. I think, she's, what's going on is she's feeling a little stuck. So, someone's in that mm. state where they have a little experience, they've been out there, they're feeling a little stuck, they can't find the right book, they can't find the right, can't find mm. anybody doing anything. Like, what, what's, what can get her through that block?
1: Well, again, part of it is to not be impatient, you know, Mm -hmm. that you want to get out there and you just want to know. But if she just goes into her ecosystem there and finds a handful of plants that she doesn't know, she can certainly, she cannot eat them, but she can certainly hang out with them, Mm -hmm. track them, draw them, watch them through the growing season, and she'll probably know what they are pretty soon. Um, So as much as that sounds really vague, you know, the first couple of years, you feel like you can't make your way through. It's all very confusing. Mm-hmm. But with a little bit of just practice, you start to differentiate, um, you know, uh, the, the physical characteristics of a plant, which often lead you to IDing it. But, you know, it does not lead you right away to eating it. So the foraging and the feasting part, you have to hold back on.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: You know, and so for her, it's an opportunity to stand in that uncomfortable place of the unknown mm-hmm. And observe what's in her ecosystem. Keep notes. Keep track. See when it flowers. See if it seeds. If there's plenty of them, dig up some roots. See what they look like. Um, you know, so you're a plant detective, and that is really how we learn. You know, but hopefully she'll get somebody in her neighborhood who's experienced, because that's worth so much just to go out there with an experienced forager, and then hope she can go to the library and look for resources. There's got to be some. Some plants oh, yeah. plant books that are Montana based. You uh,
0: know? And, and and also there's the Montana herb gathering out there. I look for herb gatherings in your area and I know there's one in Montana. So there's probably I know it's it's a big state, but if you live in Montana you're gonna get used to driving a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean and the thing the thing with the book, the forging and feasting book that I wrote, I chose very ubiquitous weeds of the world and she would probably find thirty to forty of them in Montana. Mhm. So Absolutely. they're they're you know the more common ubiqui- ubiquitous weeds like they're everywhere they're they're invasive and I know that's a bad word but in this case it's a good word you know mm-hmm. we can learn to eat those invasives and understand what their gifts are so um I think you know I understand her where she's at and I think it's just again being patient and curious, and mm-hmm. go out and become a plant detective, not with the, I'm going to go and gather lunch, but you know what, I'm going to go and meet all of these critter. you know, these wild, the green, I'm going to meet what's out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, yeah, great. And and also, uh, other resources, Erica, there's Herb Mentor, you're on there, there's, you know, then there's uh, forums and, and whatnot, and there's also the Learning Your Plants course on there. So there's a lot of places, I mean, in Montana, I think that's where... Uh, where Tom L Pell lives and he wrote botany in a day and that's another good resource isn't it cool yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so, absolutely. so um, you know I want to get into safety and stuff and so I think I'm going to do that by lead a lead-in question from another member Renee and then we can kind of get into my you know I think this question will will tip you off into some of your other favorite tips about safety um, so she so this is Renee and, and she says even though there's no chemicals being used in our yard we live on a corner of a street where there's quite a few cars and uh, is there wild food we can get from our yard still that's worth eating or should avoid? Also, when do I, you know, when when I do forage in the local mountains, I'll take a little here, a little there. Uh, mm. Would it be wrong for her to take a little more and give mm. it to someone who can as long as there is still plenty on the ground? So it sounds like we're dealing with questions of not just safety and chemical stuff, but also the whole, oh, it's just too much to harvest kind of thing. So, sure, yeah.
1: Right, so it's, it's a question of assessing the land. You know, is it, quote, clean enough to harvest from? Mm-hmm. And that is a challenging question. You know, we don't know the history of land use, maybe, of where we're standing. But I always ask the landowner, you know, if I don't know the history, where she lives. If I personally don't feel comfortable harvesting right from traffic, you know, if you're on a busy road 20 feet away, maybe 50 feet away, we all need to... Um, assess what we're comfortable with. For me, it's probably 20 feet from a road and 50 feet from a bigger road. Mm-hmm. You know, I also don't like to harvest from homes. Like, I, I want a good buffer from my home because homes are made with a lot of chemicals. So I'm of that opinion, you know, mm-hmm. move away so that, it, you know, I'm like not eating right off of my house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I know other herbalists who are very comfortable with eating from the meridian strip and eating from, you know, right off the side (laughs) of the road. And I think everybody will find what makes sense for them. I'm much more, maybe I'm lucky and privileged. I have access, but I'm also pretty preoccupied with healthful eating. And so I'm not going to be eating the toxins from house construction or roadsides, you know, so I'm going to choose to push away from there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my take on it. Um, and it is something else. Just to point out, as you know, as you begin to forage and connect with the landscape, we then become the stewards of that landscape, and we need to make sure that it isn't getting poisoned and that it's being treated right because that's our resource. You know, so it makes us really a, it makes us activists, and we need to wake up to that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that human responsibility as protectors of the land. Um, and then the question regarding foraging. Um, amounts and so again, if you're working with something that's in a weed, quote or an invasive, you know that's different than if you're harvesting something that's an end. Inda- well, I never suggest harvesting endangered species. Just no, you know. So part of it is that you require a little bit of knowledge about how prolific the plant is and how it rep- reproduces. And in some cases, people will beg you to come and dig out their weeds, and you can take as many as you want because there's no danger. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that part of um, the choice of plants for foraging and feasting is that they are they are not they're not endangered, they're invasive, um, or what would we say, uh, very happy on Earth species. You know, they're really. <laughs> You know, they're really prolific, and part of the reason for choosing those plants is that, you know, it's to celebrate that abundance. It's not to have people go and hunt down the ramps or, you know, the ginseng root, but to actually eat the field garlic, which is something we step on every day and we don't notice. That's, you know, in the Allium family, that's, you know, a delicious uh, wild green chive you have your root in there that's like, a, you know, a little onion bulb or a, a big – it's a mixed onion-garlic hybrid kind of taste. Um, but anyway, so the idea behind the plants that I chose was that we were going to bring in to focus what everyone is stepping on all the time and, and giving uh, honor to those plants. You know, not – so the idea is true. We need to be respectful and honor the, the um, you know, the plants in the landscape But at the same time, it requires that we take a bit of a plant inventory so we know how to engage in that ecosystem. And then we know, oh, well, I'm never, you know, my harvesting, in fact, of certain plants increases that plant's output. And so that is all covered in the book, too. And
0: and this is where the plant detective comes in, right? I mean, you're going, you don't have to be in a hurry. You can go to a, a local park that you might find a hedgerow or something and you can watch it. You know, Through the seasons, is someone spraying there? What's the growth cycle? Is there a lot there? Did you go hike around the corner to see if there was more growing? I mean, did you... You got
1: it. Exactly. Uh, But it's also, um, you know, the foraging and feasting concept is to celebrate those plants that are considered invasive because they're the gifts that nature is offering us and why aren't we paying attention to them? And that includes things like the dandelion, the burdock. Um, In some situations, it's chickweed, it's violet, you know, it's garlic mustard, it's gill over the ground, and so on, you know. So it was about celebrating what we're not, uh, that's everywhere for everyone pretty much, you know, and I love that image. Um, And then the other thing, too, is like if you have access to a little piece of wild, be it a backyard or maybe a bigger area, you can forage that area and you can work with it to make it more abundant and more diverse based on how you harvest, and it's it's just, it's great, you know, it's, you know, you can really pick your chickweed in a way that's going to make that chickweed flourish, you know, you're going to, you work with your nettle patch, and Mm -hmm. maybe keep it in, or, or maybe make it flourish, depending on what you need, and where you are, garlic mustard is such a beat up plant right now, at least in the northeast, people are just hating it, and, um, it's a resource. It's an incredible resource. And so, yes, I don't want it either to invade my golden field patch here, but I do want it. And so by knowing the plants, I want to be able to keep them, you know, in the landscape appropriately for my needs, you know, for, and for right. the di- encouraging plant diversity. Right. So it's a good question this, this, um, this listener or viewer writes. And, and it's, you know, you can see how there's so many ways to answer it, you know. Right, because,
0: and I yeah. think that where to harvest things is always a big question. Like, there were a couple other questions. They want to know good methods. Uh, the folks wanted to know is good, good methods for finding safe and legal, ethical foraging places, and someone else connected that with, like, is there state lands? Is that a place? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so searching for the places. Because uh, I, I know there's so many different kinds of places where you live, and some of us live with a lot of public lands around us. Some of us live with a lot of organic farms around us. I mean—
1: Right, organic farms are going to have tons of those delicious edible weeds, and they would love you to come and weed them. Uh-huh. You know, so you want to just connect to a lot of, you know, good local CSAs, um, farmers, uh, organically maintained community gardens are a resource for some of these very useful weeds. You know, that are featured in the book. Um, other other plants like. Um, different conditions and so you might need to drive around and there you spot one in the field, you know, Mm -hmm. a colony of them, and there you might ask the landowner, Are you comfortable with me, you know, forging for this? Digging roots is very different than gathering flowers, Mm -hmm. you know. When you dig the roots, the end of that plant's life. When you gather flowers or leaves and you you do it in a way that's not harming the plant, that plant will only recharge from that, you know? Right, Right. So you're you're doing it in a in a Considerate and conscious manner. You know, you're not mowing things down. You're hopping through the meadow, clipping this and that. You know, leaving a good percentage. I think in the book I even mention a percentage to leave in general. Like you would leave 30% of the plants untouched. So if it's if it's an abundant, non-endangered plant, you would still leave 30%. Like and I know that sounds crazy for dandelion and garlic mustard. People would say, take it all out. But I would say, leave 30%. So you know you can come back here and they'll still be here. And it's a
0: good rule of thumb, especially, is to get to know each plant. Because sometimes it's like, say, if I'm gathering elderberries, like, you know, I can't reach the third of them at the top of the tree anyway. <laughs> That's
1: right. That's right. I mean, and, and with elderberry, you're not going to wipe it out when you harvest flower or seed. You will be competing with wildlife. And so you want right. to honor that and consider how much you want to leave. But in terms of the plant itself, flower and, and fruit, you know, it's their giveaway. You know, they're not, um, you're not hurting the mama plant from that. Mm-hmm. You're not endangering elderberry, although always leave flower and seed because you want birds and you want reproduction to happen So, you know, for the colony, the elderberry colony, but the particular plant itself is not harmed in any way are you har- harvesting flower or, or fruit from it?
0: Yeah, I think people uh, often, it's, it's, it's an attractive thing to want to have a formula to, to just do it by. But the reality is this is nature and your connection to nature. And so it's going to be whatever. It's going to be a learning journey.
1: Yeah, it's about you and your ecosystem. Yeah, you know. So what do you have where you live? How does it behave in your landscape? And what are your needs or the needs of your community or the needs of the ecosystem there? And those are all the things to consider And, um, but I can say generally speaking that the weedy, quote, weedy, you know, plants that are so useful, we don't have to be too cautious around, you know, we can dig a lot of dandelion and burdock and I don't think we have to be too concerned, you know, or gill over the ground is another one that people, you know, don't even recognize. And it's a useful plant. I mean, it's not a delicious plant, um, but it has its uses. It's, It's a great, um you know, plant in its own right, things like lamb's quarter and amaranth, which just totally take over, you know, gardens and, and, uh, fields of cultivated crops, that, that's another, you know, thing to celebrate, Mm -hmm. you know, here, here they are, they're showing up and they're annoying the corn grower or whoever, you know, whatever is being grown. But that, that amaranth is so nutritious, more nutritious than most of the field crops that are you know, cultivated, and we're just tossing them out. So the idea is, hey, you know, you're not going into pristine nature to forage. You're, you're going right into your own backyard, right into your lawn, right into the landscape.
0: Hmm. And so, I, you know, at parks, the question of the parks is that I've, like at a local park where I pick, you know, blackberries or I pick rose petals, and I know the people work there, and then I could... You know, was always asking you know, which area don't you spray or if, you know something, but they didn't seem to mind that. But I know that there's going to be all different rules if it's state or federal or whatever. I just don't know. Do you have a resource to find out about that? Or uh, I,
1: I don't. I yeah. think you know it's best to um you know to pick um on land that you've gotten permission to pick from. You yeah,
0: know? exactly. And
1: so if it's if it's we you know if you have a preserve in your na- in your area and it's like you cannot pick plants. Then I don't know what to say about that. So, if it's
0: poly- exa- that's a great point. So, I think no matter what the land is, find someone to talk to. So, a ranger will refer you to somebody and they'll tell you, totally. oh, okay, well, we, there is a, because it's, it's what kind of plant it is. You know, it's one thing. If you're picking something, they might be like, Ah, well, you know, other times it might be like, no, there's protection over this. You can't touch this.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm unhappy personally. Like, we have um, an incredible blueberry a wild blueberry range up here Mm -hmm. in in a in a state park that's right right where we live in a preserve right in this neighborhood and they don't allow the blueberries to be picked and it just it's like are you kidding you know this is such a gift and it's and they just will rot on that you know and there's hundreds of acres of these wild blueberries
0: the bears can't possibly eat them all
1: (laughs) no the bears are in there and it's like wow such a resource so I'm unhappy with when, you know, they should have some kind of I understand you need to protect the land, but you know, you want to find the balance between that's a resource for this neighborhood and that they should say no, you know, and it's not hurting anything and it's just it's so it's it's a celebration, but you know, whatever. So you still have to be respectful and figure out how you can work, mm-hmm. you know, with what the landscape offers you. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mhm. Okay, so, you know, when speaking of blueberries, that would be you know that late summer time or whatever, depending on where you live. Now, uh, what about like um, people understand make a basic ideas on what plant parts to pick? Because sometimes people will be like, uh, Oh, I've heard about burdock root and uh, it's good for mm. this, and I want to pick it, and it's spring, or sorry, yeah, that's not a good example because you can pick it, uh, but it's <laughs> a, it's off season and it's like middle of summer, sure. and it's just like I want to pick it, and so like is there a general guideline for times of years for different parts of plants?
1: Right. So um, part of teaching plants is that you track that particular mm-hmm. plant, and so you're going to meet the plant in all these different stages of growth, and that's going to help you to understand when you pick what. Each plant has its unique, um, you know, ev- uh, what would you say, its unique moment. And it, and so you can't generalize, but I'm going to do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So, with berries, you know, you're looking really its summer. Generally, berries are available through the summer. Um, the salad, leafy greens, depending on where you live, for us, are really abundant in spring, early summer, and then again in early fall, through fall, if there's enough rainfall. So, you know, I'm really generalizing. Roots generally are dug after a couple of hard frosts. That is, here we have them in the northeast. We don't have as, any, <laughs> right, or as the plant has gone dormant, right, so you're you're looking for when the energy of the plant has descended down and has gone dormant, and that's usually root digging time. Um, but that changes. that rule changes if you want a very bitter dandelion root because you want to make a bitter's tincture. you know you would dig that in in full flower in in full in, in the height of its you know flowering period. so that's more like I want to say you know early summer or something early. So depending on what you're going for in Jerusalem artichoke, which I feature in the book, is more gas producing mm. <laughs> in the earlier um, fall to winter and less so in the spring when you dig the roots. So again, but roots in general are dug, dug after the plant has, has, its tops have died back. That's, you know, so generalizations aren't great here <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, each plant has its own story to tell and and the parts are available at different times.
0: But. Right, right, right. But it's a good, you yeah. know, generalization to understand. That's great. Yeah. And before we get into a specific, you know, going on a little plant walk, um, you know, just because because I remember this with myself is, um, like how much to pick and what to do when you get home. Like good practices, like you know, mm-hmm. so don't like, oh, as far as over harvesting or taking too much or you get, you know, so what what do you yeah. and people do have those fears like oh I'm gonna pick too much or whatever so. What what about that?
1: What about that? I mean, you know, it depends how, yeah, you're right to say, hey, I have to curb my um, enthusiasm here. I'm too eager because I'm not going to be able to process all of this. Mm -hmm. Or you might be that kind of industrious person that is going to be able to process them. (laughs) That's true. And so, you know, it has to do with (laughs) checking in with yourself, just like when you are, you know, putting food on your plate and are you packing your (laughs) plate too full and you can't eat it? You're going to be, are you that kind of person that will finish your plate, you know? Right. So you want to just check in with yourself about that. Um, for me, I feel like forging it, it. Once you get into the rhythm of it, it's about daily practice. You're out there every day gathering salad. You know, if you're in the salad moment of the year, which is a long moment here. You know, we can eat wild salads mm. seven or eight months out of the year,
2: mm.
1: and so you're not picking that much. At a, you're picking the amount you're going to be eating in a few minutes. You mm-hmm. know, bring out your bowl, depending on how many folks you're feeding. You know, you're going to cook some nettle. You just consider the recipe. So for me, foraging, it's when you're making medicines, you have, it's different. When you're thinking you're going to preserve and dry, you might overharvest. But when you're thinking about what, what you're preparing as a meal, it's not that difficult, mm. you know, because you're going to be doing it tomorrow or the next day, hopefully. I mean, that's the goal right. to have people, you know, out there in nature constantly connecting. But I'll say also that if you're only able to forage once a week, you can put in um, you know your wild greens just the way you would put freshly picked kale into a nice, you know, Ziploc plastic bag or whatever you have. It will stay if like amaranth and lamb's quarter and nettle. Mm-hmm. The, I've had the experience where I can pick a week's worth and it stays fresh. You know, like if I have to present somewhere and I need to bring a, a chunk of it and I can't harvest on a daily basis. You know, think about how much you would use before it goes bad. So that's another thing. Is the greens generally the ones that are for cooking? The quote pot herbs will stay fresh in the fridge for probably five, week, you know, five days to seven days or something. Just make sure you eat them, you know, so they don't rot in the back of the fridge. Um, but the other things too, like picking berries. For me here, I'm a crazy berry picker, mm-hmm. and so I want to pick, 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 and I just have to make sure that I will process them. And I process them into what's called a fruit coulis, and I stick that into the the freezer. And then now, on off season, I can eat berries and put them, you know, into shakes or into ice cream or into cheesecake or into syrups. Uh, yeah, syrups, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's so great. Yeah, so it depends on who you are and if you have freezer space. You know, <laughs> you know what 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 are your resources and so don't over-harvest. It's not the biggest crime to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you won't get arrested, Especially,
0: unless it's on a federal land.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a crime to do that. For example, if you're picking too much nettle and you end up with too much and, you you know, some of it rots, well, you put it in your compost, and it's wonderful compost food. Right. You know, so, but, yeah. So I I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Long, long answer to that. How much should you harvest?
0: hmm Okay, and... um so, let's get to some plants, like uh I know there's like ones that you know that are great everyone to know about, like things like dandelion and whatnot. but when you're writing this book, like as you've been growing as an herbalist and and what what are some maybe a, a few maybe we'll talk about more surprising and common plants that you've found a lot of versatility to use in different recipes
1: mm. well, that was part of the fun was actually taking plants that I'd been using forever. Uh-huh. Pushing their edge, like where <laughs> cool. can you push the edge, you know, and it's part of the pleasure like lemon balm, which is pretty weedy around here, and most people just end up with too much lemon balm, they don't know what to do with it, mm-hmm. so of course we know it makes a beautiful tea and we can use it in the aromatic, aromatic spirits, like a kind of a tincture, but lemon balm ice cream, lemon balm custard, minced up lemon balm in a marinated green pilaf, lemon balm and stuffed grape leaves, you know, so you have um, all this fun. You know, even lemon balm actually as a fish topping. Wow. (laughs) So you're baking fish and lemon balm is, is with other herbs, it's not straight lemon balm, but you puree it into a paste and you're coating the fish, it's delicious. So, you know, Mm. pushing the edge with these flavors, it's like, you know, how um, creative can we be and still be delicious, you know? So lemon balm is an example. The mints are also like that. They're crazy abundant around here. And mints can be played with too, endlessly. It's like and in fact, you know, I wanted to feature a lot of the mint recipes in the book like the mint chutney, um, mint lassies, mint in I'm trying to remember I should turn to the mint page. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, you know, making herbal truffles with a dehydrated mint um, in it or actually using fresh peppermint minced into cookies that are delicious or making a banana smoothie that has mint, fresh mint leaves you you infuse. Actually, you can also use cocoa in there so you have your peppermint um, chocolate banana smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's part of the beauty of this project, this, this cookbook is you know, taking t- templates or master recipes and then um, once you learn the techniques of what's possible, you know, then you then you begin to investigate. And so I give, you know, several variations and choices um, having tested them all, but it just also, let, it's a springboard for, for more creativity once you understand those master recipe templates and techniques. So what other ones to push the edge? I mean, Um, garlic mustard, you know, grating that root up and making a a horseradish is amazing. How would you do that? Well, you would dig up the um, garlic mustard now where I am would be perfect or in the spring, and then you would um, puree the the root with vinegar, with a good apple cider vinegar, put in some salt, and you have a very strong horseradish.
0: Um, Really? Or
1: the other thing no this is
0: without actually it being horseradish you have a
1: well it's a close relative It is meaning you know it's a basicaceae it's in the same family you know so once you get to to be fluent in the language of plants right you're going to start to be able to see those connections oh yeah that makes sense you know you can make mustard from its seeds and you can make horseradish from its roots and then you eat the leaves of garlic mustard and it's fun to for the cookbook for example Well, you know i make grilled cheese, like a good sourdough bread, good, you know, good high-quality grass-fed cheese, and you can sneak in, like, all kinds of wild greens, and garlic mustard works beautifully in that. So uh, garlic mustard grilled cheese. Um, let's see what other curious, you know, ways to use herbs. Um, uh, there is a fun recipe in the book uh, called It's a Shepherd's Pie or a Cottage Pie, and you're using potatoes as the um you know as as the topping but you're actually mixing them with burdock root and you have a a potato burdock root mash topping which is delicious. If if you eat meat, it's you know, use grass fed grass fed meats mm-hmm. and then you, you bake this dish and you have this amazingly tasty um and it has this essence of burdock root, you know? <laughs> it's, it's great. Another interesting thing which was pushing the edge is dandelion root bisque soup.
2: So you're making
1: these root bisques and you're adding just enough dandelion that it's not too bitter, but it has the dandelion essence in it and you have these root discs and dandelion. I just thought wow, that that's pretty cool. So what you're <laughs> doing is really
0: essentially is okay, so you're a cook, or you're a chef cook person and you've got these very I'm cook. just a
2: cook. You're a long-time cook. You're a long-time, you're cook. A long-time yeah. cook
0: is who knows the basics cook. And then here you are um just figuring out creative ways to put wild foods in recipes that you're already making. So that's a way for some people. So in a way to really, I mean, even though your book's awesome, in a way somebody, in a way, could just take a, I don't know, like a lasagna recipe and replace the greens with, uh, the spinach with whatever. Or with lansporter. Lansporter. Or nettles. you absolutely or, right.
1: Yep. Right. You're absolutely right. That's the idea, is you take classic recipes. Right. And so, and the book lays that out, actually. The recipes are designed so um, they're classic master recipes that um, I've accumulated and researched over the years, you'll find, like, for example, a gratin, which is delicious, cheesy custard, savory cheesy custard, and you put greens typically, you know, a spinach gratin or something. But in this case, you know, you can use the amaranth or the lamb's quarter or the nettle or the yellow dock leaves that are young, you know, or the game's rocket leaves that are young. So you have all these pot herb choices, you know, the herbs you cook in a pot, and you plug them into the gratin, but you also, if you don't have those wild plants, you can mm-hmm. use cultivated ones. Always in the cookbook, it celebrates, um, all, it, it celebrates food and doesn't want to limit it. So the idea is here are the wild plants that relate to this particular recipe, but the cultivated variations are also delicious, and this is what they look like. So you're creating um, food literacy. You know, you're creating, in the book, the desire is to create plant literacy and food or slash cooking literacy. So people become, you know, empowered and they know, hey, this is the green I have. I know I can can cook it in all these Mm -hmm. different ways. It's not limited, Mm -hmm. you know. But, yeah, you're right. So it's it's about knowing your recipes, and that's part of the fun is offering these 100 master recipes for folks to really get to know, you know, your... Where you can plug in
0: the wild. This is cool. And, so and, I want to. I want. I, yeah. I went to this page, page 150, to the root. It's called the Root Bisque Master Recipe. So we have. So what I'm seeing here is a master recipe. Now you know it's real hard to just say all this on a podcast because you're not going to remember it anyway. But the point is, uh, <laughs> is that mm-hmm. I, I'm looking at this great recipe that that's you know has the butter, the onion, celery, the stock, um, and then it'll say in there, uh, and and the process, six simple six step process. And it'll say four cups of roots. See variations below. I look below for root bisque variations. And here I see Jerusalem artichoke bisque, burdock bisque, dandelion bisques, cardamom fennel dandelion bisque, uh, you know, and, and witcher squash bisque. Um, so that's amazing. Right, so so this, get, this, get... this is a learning yeah. how to cook book in addition exactly. to how to infuse the herbs into it. So I'm going to learn how to make a bisque with this book really simply, and then I'm going to know exactly how to go out and, you know, chop up some dandelions and, and, and and, and I just want to point out too that, 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 you know, that's right. I mean, Dina, this is how you learn about the plants. Like, so here that's you right. are with dandelion, you go and do that, then you learn about dandelion. And you might go and say, I'm going to read some more about dandelion and,
1: That's right. I mean, a couple of things to note about the master recipes, too, is that you have three tablespoons of fat, and then you have your options. If you're not a butter eater, you can use olive oil. If you Mm. are, uh, you have grass-fed beef tallow available, that's your local fat. You can use that if you want coconut oil, that's available. So the idea is, you know, there's flexibility within that master, but it's also very, very concrete and clear, Mm -hmm. and then it shows you what you can vary. And then when you go down to the roots and their variations, you will have to follow that according to the ratios. So dandelion root is bitter, so we don't want too much of it. We need a certain amount of potato to offset that. And so that's detailed in the variations. It's not like yes. just use dandelion in root. It's, it's use dandelion root in these ratios because right. the nature of dandelion is it will, nobody will eat that soup if it's straight up dandelion root. Mm-hmm. It's too bitter, you know. But um, it works really, it's a, it's an amazing taste when it's set in properly, you know, when it's in the right context. So that's part of the challenge or beauty or pleasure of this book is that, you know, there's a lot of finessing to understand the personalities of the plants and how they relate to those recipes.
0: Right. You know, it, so you even have a master recipe for, like, herbal drinks. So could you talk about one of the your favorite herbal drinks?
1: Oh, the herbal drinks are awesome i really fattened up the beverage section like I always- <laughs> you know most cookbooks don't feature beverages and i feel like when you're an herbalist beverages you know you have so much play with them and when you're a forager and then you have all these fruits you know you have so much so you can make face it tea most- gets boring
0: right i mean really Say it again. <laughs> tea gets boring.
1: <laughs> well, you can take that tea and you can make it from a hundred or more different plants, and it doesn't get so boring because you have that option. But you can take that herbal infusion and then you can layer it yeah. and you can add fruits to it. And so you create the raspberry leaf, raspberry agua fresca. It's basically a raspberry uh, mm. juice that has raspberry leaf tea as its base. You know, it's fresh raspberry leaves pureed with a raspberry leaf infusion and you're sweetening it just as much as your taste buds need. And it's just, you know, it's got a depth in it or nettle, um, blueberry, you know, you're, so you're par- partnering herbs now with fruits and making these fresh drinks and then you can ferment them. You can turn them into water kefir sodas. And so then you're making these pretty, you know, amazing sodas, um, the herbal deluxe drinks are pretty impressive. <laughs>
2: they,
1: re- they require a little bit more, I'm going to, um, look. yeah, so the deluxe herbal drinks
2: mm.
1: are where you're actually using an infusion, you're using an herbal essence water, you're using a fruit puree or a coulis, as they call them, um, and you're mixing all of those together. And you're, so it's a very layered drink that whenever, you ser- whenever I serve that, like it's a book, release party we served it or at my friend's weddings and just big events and people you know just die for them it, this layering
0: and <laughs> doing this i just hadn't seen it before did you come up with it or inspired from other you know with friends I, came, I mean
1: i i probably was inspired but i don't remember from where it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that i'd been investigating this for years so it was I'm sorry to say if someone inspired me, I can't remember who, but I feel like I did come up with it. (laughs) Um, You know, and then the most subtle waters are where you have your aromatics and you take fresh handfuls of anacissa or other aromatic of choice, even like a, a garden basil, and you're steeping that into cold water and you're just letting it sit, No heat, just time, maybe two to four hours, and you have this very light, refreshing aromatic water you know that's the easiest to make and then from there you just go on and and you can choose to just stay really simple and it's still satisfying or you can go deeper you know and, and investigate you can even go to the point where you take like um you add alcohol so i have this whole section on on um what do you uh alcohol like the, um, i'm not remembering the name. spirits where the spirits are entering and and it's it's also not I'm not much of a drinker personally, but I love inventing and so you can make you know the apple um apple mint bourbon or you know the grape lemon balm brandy you know it's just all these parts you put together and and using uh distilled liquor brings in this whole other category of of mixing you know that I'm excited about, it even though I don't drink much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I just had this vision here about a great way for people to learn. I'm looking through this and how you've got these the, the Agua Fresca and you have all these different things and you have spreads. And I'm looking at the Wild Tapenade Master Recipe. I'm like, folks, you could have this vision of like having a uh, like a wild foods uh, cocktail party or or d'oeuvre party. Absolutely. and have your friends over and and sample all these beautiful things that you're making, and how inspiring would that be? And and talk about a way to learn. I mean, learn. It's learn by doing and and sharing.
1: That's exactly it. Yep. Learn by doing. And also, it's so delicious and um, appealing, you know, that it's an entry point. Mm. Like people, we've been serving, because we've been going around promoting our book now, and we're serving these wild green pestos and these tapenades, and they are made with the weediest weeds, <laughs> you know, and they're in elegant settings, and people are nibbling it, and it's just, it's a pleasure, you know, it's, this is exactly the point, is to celebrate these weeds that we're ignoring, you know, the burdock root is ground up, the nettle leaf is ground up, and it's, it's put into these truffles that are served with rose hips, and you have these very elegant Herbal truffles, but they're full of these invasive weeds right. <laughs> that are really good for us. You know mm. that are nutritious. So, it this book is um, metaphorically, you know, it, it's called the. Tro- it's not the real image of a Trojan horse, but like you're bringing it in somewhere and they don't know what's really in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something else is coming out. Right.
2: Right. You know,
1: so you're you're putting it in a guise that's appealing, that's attractive, tasty. And really, you're ce- you're celebrating local, you know, wild food that people, ha- you know, ignore or, or have been stepping on and don't know it's there. You can make a very elegant bitters, <clears throat> and one of the main ingredients is gill over the ground, and that's a weedy oh. weed. You know, and you use the gill over the ground in there, and you put it in an attractive bottle, and you know, people put it in their mixed drinks or a little bit as an aperitif. And, you know, it's just I love that image, you know, that you're you're taking these things that are abundant and free and available to everyone almost everywhere. And it's a resource. And how do we tap into that resource, you know, and, and make it so that as much as I am radical and fringe, I'm also wanting to appeal to, to everyone. It isn't like it has to be experienced as a a radical fringe thing, you know.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. So the, the, the
0: yeah. Well, so now that winter is you know coming on here, we're uh, in uh, the time we're recording this, and by the time this is first released to, or meant to members this recording, uh, it'll be just about Thanksgiving time. So if there was something that people could make from the book, or um, like or recipe, what what would you feel be a great thing people could make for their family on Thanksgiving that they would sure. love? Sure.
1: Well, you know, I do have a big Thanksgiving here with family, and I have to always do the turkey thing, and I love to do that. So that's you want. I, <laughs> so let's say you could serve a meal. Um, you know, if that, you're gonna. I'm gonna serve the Thanksgiving meal, but let's say you could serve other dishes around that, mm. or something, or you could serve a meal the next day. You know, with the same festivity around it. Um, the cottage pie that I refer to mm-hmm. is pretty celebratory and delicious. So it's it's the cottage pie. It's a uh, burdock root uh, topped cottage pie, um, but something you could serve on Thanksgiving Day along with the turkey for des- you know as a dessert is the fruit mousse pies. They are amazing. So the fr- the burdock root is appropriate for November. You're going to be able to dig roots. With the berries you'll have had to have frozen already, you know. So that. If people have some frozen berries, or maybe they could buy them and cheat, you know, mm-hmm. they're not going to be wild. You can make these fruit mousse pies that are in a, in a raw pressed crust, mm-hmm. and they're incredibly refreshing. And people l- respond to them, you know, across the board, it's a favorite. We serve them at the more elegant functions. <laughs> I tell, tell you, what, oh. you,
0: know, I'm going to ask you on the spot here. Can I, uh, this page from the book, can I... Yeah. Uh, post this this one page Absolutely. so people can sure. see the fruit mousse pie so they could, and uh, it'll be on Herb Mentor where you you know where this is posted on HerbMentor.com and you can download a PDF here and there and uh, that so you could make that for Thanksgiving so you know how to do it.
1: Yeah, that would be so wonderful. Mm-hmm. The only thing is you need to post the pressed crusts and that's fine too because they'll need to know, or they can use a crust of choice but if you use these pressed crusts which are made mm-hmm. with almonds or with hazelnuts or You know, and they're just fabulous. You know, but you could use any rolled, baked crust as well, and they work. But um, in the recipe, the master, I think, I suggest you use the pressed crust. Um,
0: Cool. I mean, I'll just, I'll just pyre. I'll just take a great photo on my iPhone and turn it into a PDF, and (laughs) yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. It'll work.
1: Yeah. I mean, and then other things for um, you know recipes to feature. You can always add a little bit of an herbal essence to your whipped cream if you're getting good grass-fed cream and you whip it, maple sweeten it, and you can add a little elderberry syrup or you can add raspberry syrup or you can add – you know it's fun, just playing around with stuff like that. You're going to serve a dessert and you want to put some whipped cream. What other – let's see, what other things – you know, of course, if you're – like, I think where you live, you'll be able to still get greens for salad, right? Yeah, I mean, right in you front mean, of my
0: office is a giant chickweed patch
1: at zero, yeah, so, It's I mean, just
0: started, you know, so it's, a be, it's all winter for me here.
1: Absolutely. So, for Thanksgiving, salad's always nice, and adding the wild greens to that salad is very good. Mm-hmm. You know, good digestive, um, just as a simple thing. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to quickly review. what would. It's a good question. What would we serve for Thanksgiving um, as an appetizer, you could do the wild green pesto, and we will we will have garlic mustard um, here, and chickweed and violet would make a good combination.
2: Absolutely,
1: um, the wild tapenade is very tasty. That's a nice one to offer. So you could have an appetizer moment, you know, in your Thanksgiving meal. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. But don't tell
0: your people. grandma till you're done, till it's over. No. <laughs> Grandma, you, um, you just ate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you like it?
1: <laughs> so, um, you know what? Go ahead. Let me just add one thing. There's the fruit chutneys. I'm just oh. sorting through the book. And the fruit chutneys, there's a whole thing on fruit chutneys. And if, you've, if you have access to fruit or if you've frozen it, you can make some really delicious chutneys that would go well with your cranberry sauce mm. or in place of your cranberry sauce gooseberry chutney for example or red Um, currant chutney so that's just other things to think about
0: man I'm getting hungry now (laughs) 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 so you know one question I forgot to ask was Tamara was wondering about um, you know winter's coming and so it's here it's for some of us uh, what kind of uh, wild food choices do we have, or do they have to hang on till spring comes around? Now, you know, I said where I live, I can get chickweed. I guess it depends on where you live, and I don't know where she lives. But is there some, you know, a couple things she could think well, about?
1: In the northeast, where I'm from, mm-hmm. you're not going to be foraging very much. Mm-hmm. You know, once the snow comes and the ground freezes, you still have pine trees. You know, you can make your your pine tea and things like that, but it's very minimal, the foraging where you live you're going to be able, i'm pretty sure you're going to be able to get greens throughout yeah, the winter totally. you have your wild hardy greens mm-hmm. you know in the pacific northwest so each each climate you know will have different things i don't know where she's from but
0: yeah, I did where i
1: am things. yeah it sleeps things start to go to sleep so exactly
0: exactly so um all right dina the book here foraging and feasting um where can folks get a copy now that that their appetites are wet?
1: (laughs) (laughs) They can order the book directly from our website, which is botanicalartspress.com. And those come packaged and shipped from our own hands, so we send them out. If people are listening and they'd like to get them um, into their local neighborhoods, we also do wholesale, so people are welcome to request them through their independent Mm -hmm. local bookstores. The book is not available um, as uh, a low cost option. You know, on the internet, it's only available at the price that it's set. So, oh, well,
0: just oh, just actually, I think it's low cost. It's forty dollars, and to me, for what this book is, for what it represents, for the work that went into it, and the quality of the material, and the wisdom, and you know, this isn't like you know going to half price books and seeing a pile of herbal books written by information compilers. This is a book written by an herbalist. Um, mm. with wisdom and you know a respected herbalist, so forty dollars to me is nothing like this is like this is i mean Thank come you. on, this is like this is what would you spend for a course in wild foods, and this is like you know a lot more than forty dollars, and you've done it here so right so uh,
1: i'll add I'll add too that Powell's now carries book, mm-hmm. so is that a store in your area or somewhere out there? Powells is in Portland, the-
0: but I think they do online sales too, right. So, okay,
1: well, Powell's in Portland yeah. at, their, at their shop, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking if people want to go and support local independent bookstores, mm-hmm. we want those stores to have our book, and Powell's now carries nice. it. Nice. Um, but if you're going to order online, which is great, you know, do it through us.
0: <laughs> yeah, always recommend. Go straight to the herbalist. That's why I always ask, even if something's on, uh, something's on sale on Amazon, I'll always search first to see if that person's selling it themselves because, uh, Wait. you know…
1: Well, Amazon isn't a vendor of the book. We sell through Amazon, but the Amazon itself does not sell the right, book. Right. That was a choice we made, mm-hmm. but it's available through vendors on Amazon so that Amazon is not able to undersell the value of the book.
0: Yeah, great. Nope. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> Very smart. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and also, Botanical yeah. Arts Press has, um, you know, because these illustrations, they shouldn't just live in this book. There's prints and note cards also other books, Tina's other books, and Wendy's other books. You can check out that. Workshops. Do you have any cool workshops that you're going to be doing in the spring or something to inspire people to places you're teaching that people can meet you and take classes?
1: That's so nice of you to ask. You know, I'm still figuring out. I typically teach a class that's May through October, uh, one Saturday a month, so people really meet the plants through the growing season, and mm. that's here in the Mid-Hudson Valley. I typically teach that class, but because of this book, I'm not sure, and I'm thinking maybe that we're going to do some touring around to promote the book. So it's not, I'm on the fence, but thanks for asking, and I will be offering that class in 2015 for sure. But for, for right now, I'm just tentative on, yeah. Oh, if, if, you're, if you come any, to I
0: Seattle, say, come to Seattle area, we can hang out.
1: Actually, we might.
0: Oh, that'd be great. You know, we're trying to figure it all out. <laughs> <That'd be great.
1: laughs> if we come to Seattle, shall we hook up something with you? Yeah, absolutely. We'll just—I don't
0: know—we'll just go hang out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just hide up here in my little a little town I don't get out much (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so uh, folks again botanicalartspress.com Dina Falcone thank you so much for joining us today again on our venture radio it was an honor a pleasure and um, I guess we'll have you back after your next book whatever that is
1: (laughs) oh thank you (laughs)
0: thanks John thank you so much you're welcome see y'all Visit LearningHerbs.com for free courses, ebooks, and monthly lessons. You'll also find the Herbal Remedy Kit and Wildcraft, an herbal adventure game. Herb Mentor Radio is produced for HerbMentor.com, our community mentoring site. Herb Mentor Radio is copyright LearningHerbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it.